Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. If you look back over your education, I'm sure you can pick out one or two teachers who seemed very excited about the subject matter, and this can be inspiring to students. My guest today is Dr. Walter Kemp. Dr. Kemp is a forensic pathologist, and he also has a very strong interest in teaching. Today, we're going to talk about his career so far, how he came to choose forensic pathology and his work in anthropology, and then we'll talk about some of the teaching methods he uses to try to inspire his students. All right, here's Dr. Walter Kemp. Now, I know um, in college, you, you I think it was a major in biology and a minor in chemistry, right? Correct. Okay. Now, as at the time when you were, you know, going into college and you were, you know, choosing a major and that kind of thing, what was it always to get into to go to medical school, or did you have something else in mind in the kind of in that field? Um, so, actually, when I was in high school, I wanted to be a chemical engineer, and um, when I applied to colleges, the only college that I got a, a good scholarship to was Carroll College, and Carroll College had two science programs. One was a three-two program for engineering where you spent three years at Carroll and then two years at another school, including Notre Dame. And I really didn't want to go somewhere else for two years. And so the only other thing that option they had was pre-med. So I know it upsets medical students when I say it, but I just decided I would be a doctor. So um, that's how I made that decision and transferred away from chemical engineering to medicine. That's interesting. I've had a couple other people on the podcast that that studied chemical engineering. Um <laughs> Yeah, and and it's, so it's it's interesting that there's that sort of connection. What was it that kind of interested you about that field early on? Oh, chemistry. Yeah, chemistry. Uh, oh, just because I'm I'm a, I guess I just really like science growing up and everything, and chemistry just to me was interesting. So I just kind of thought that that might be a good field for me. So just because I like chemistry in high school and that. Oh, I got you. Okay, okay. All right. So then when you, you decided you were going to go pre-med instead, uh, did you have like, like influences, you know, some people have like a family member that was in either a doctor or is in the health, a different, you know, medical field, something like that. Did you have that kind of thing, that sort of influence? Oh, no, my mom was a high school, my mom was a school teacher and my dad was city manager and I'm the first uh, MD in my family. Were there like counselors in, in school that were that helped to direct you towards medical school? No, it was purely, like I said, purely the, uh, the fact that Carol offered me a really nice scholarship and the only science program they had was pre-med that I could stay there for the four years. That was, that was my decision. I mean, so unfortunately I didn't take a lot of thought into it. I talked with people about medicine. Um, there was a family practitioner in town I met with, um, and that like that, but it was, it wasn't a, it wasn't the best well thought out decision and it, I'm glad it turned out good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So then going into medical school, how, what was your first interaction with pathology? Um, actually we had, um, uh, probably that would be our small group when I was a second year medical student. Um, that was kind of my basic inter- introduction to it, but that wasn't a very, um, uh, instrumental in my decision what happened was during second year of medical school you could sign up to an autopsy and my initial decision was no I really didn't want to see an autopsy and then one of my friends called me one weekend he said hey it's a holiday it's a vacation weekend all the medical students are gone they have an autopsy do you want to go observe I said uh sure I'm not doing anything else I went that's what I want to do so okay so it was 
pathology and specifically forensic pathology right from the beginning? Well, it was autopsy from the beginning. The thing about it is that I knew that I knew that there were very few jobs available for full-time autopsy pathologists. So I kind of defaulted into forensics because I knew that you could find a a job doing full-time forensics much easier than you could doing full-time autopsy. Now, before you went, you know, into the pathology direction, what sort of other specialties were you interested in or, or were there any others? Actually, initially when I went to medical school, my plan was to do family medicine just because I wanted to go back to Montana and I knew that um, family medicine would probably be a good fit with my home state. So that was kind of just my initial impression of what I wanted to do. So you decided to go into pathology, going going into residency, then when was it that you kind of decided that forensics was uh, the way you wanted to go? Oh, that was my initial, like I said, that once once I... Once I observed that autopsy, and there was actually two in one day, which is unusual in the resident, uh, mm-hmm. J.D. Bond, who actually went to forensics, he said, well, you don't have to come back. Oh, no, I want to come back. I want to come back. Came back and watched it. And after that, it was, it was um, you know, I, like I said, I kind of knew that you couldn't get a full-time job as an autopsy pathologist very easy. So I decided to go into forensics. And from then on, I always tell people it was tough telling the surgeons I was rotating with that I wanted to go into forensic pathology. But basically, from, from that point on, I was uh, set toward going into forensic pathology. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask you about that because you mentioned about the surgeons, and I know in you know some others, maybe in like pathology residency, when you say, "Yeah, I'm going to go into forensics," they kind of want to maybe steer you in a different direction. I mean, did you have that kind of thing where people wanted you to kind of take another uh, look at some other areas? No, actually, my experience, I they were all very supportive. Um, I actually had a one of the surgeons I rotated with in his letter of evaluation. He said that I think you know, Willie's choosing friends pathology. I think he's made the right choice and some people could take that bad. And I didn't, I knew him and I thought he made a really good comment. The only time I had was one of the surgeons said that, you know, have you ever thought about surgery? And I said, no, I, I can't, I can't be a surgeon. And he actually had a really good response to that. He goes, we teach you to be a surgeon. And I, I thought that was a really great response. And it was true that, you know, you, um, and so I always tell students that I said, you know, if you want to do something, they'll teach you how to do it. But I just knew it wasn't for me. But I thought it was a really, it was a really, really positive way to um, to say that. So I always remember that. Mm, yeah. Okay. I agree with that. Let's let's talk about kind of the forensics uh, fellowship training because I'm always curious what that what that's like. What was that experience like for you? Uh, it was fantastic. Um, so when I first got to Dallas, and I, I mean, I knew I wanted to do forensics. I I. I wanted to go to Dallas because I wanted to stay at a program where I could do residency and forensics. Um, so about, I started on autopsy at the hospital and then about the third or fourth weekend, I started going down to the medical examiner's office and I'd go down each weekend and Dr. Bernard was great. He showed me how to do a case and then kind of, he would do the external and let me do the internal and kind of let me be off by my own. It took me six hours to do my first autopsy <laughs> um, and stuff like that. So he was, he was great about getting me involved in that. And then, I did a lot of cases there, um, first and second year, and then I stayed on as a fellow, and it was just great training. Now, is that where you started teaching as well? Yeah, officially, yes, at Southwestern. So, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, after I I finished, um, I stayed on as faculty there for uh-huh. uh, two years, two months. Um, and then the, kind of my, I mean, I've always been kind of interested in helping others, you know, through high school, college, everything like that. But that's where I really started kind of formally teaching was at um, UND. Or I'm sorry, at uh, UT Southwestern. 
Now, I'm curious because the interesting thing, one of the interesting things about you is you went on to get a master's and then a PhD in anthropology. Yes, correct. Okay. Was this something that was of interest to you before getting into forensics and before getting into medicine or did that develop later? Oh, it, it developed later. Um, I, you know, is it, when, I, when I left Dallas, uh, I went to Missoula, Montana. Um, I was the deputy state medical examiner there. And um, we got a lot of bones, a um, lot of non-human bones, some human bones and that. And so the program was there. And I told Dr. Dale, I said, well, maybe I should just get my get master in anthropology. He said, yeah, that's a great idea. He, he had thought about it when he was in his first year out of um, fellowship. He was at University of New Mexico and they had a strong anthropology program. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was very supportive. And then I was talking with my one of my main teachers and I said, do you, should I just transfer into the PhD program? Oh, yeah, do that. And that's how I kind of transferred into it. So no, I really didn't have any interest until we started getting all those bone specimens as a, as a, as forensic cases. And I thought, Oh, this'd be great. Um, so that's why I decided to do it. You said they're non-human bones. Were they like from what hunters bring them in or something like that? How did that go? Oh yeah. No hunters, people find them. It's very common. I would say kind of the majority of bones that are found tend to be, end up being non-human. Um, but people see them and, and don't know what, they, and some of them look very similar. I mean, if you look at, um, you know, the, the, uh, bones of a, of a deer paw or a deer, um, paw and a bear, they look very, very similar to, to humans, unless you understand the anatomy of it, then they look very different, but to, to a less, to somebody with lesser experience in it. Yeah, they look so that they're brought in quite frequently. Um, we got metapodials a lot and stuff like that. Those are the generic term for metatarsal metacarpal. Um, so yeah, okay. uh, they've got a lot of non-human, but some human. Okay. That reminds me of a long time ago, I was working at a hospital and somebody like brought some, they had found some bones in like an alley somewhere and they had brought them into security at the hospital to have one of the pathologists look at them. And I think she determined that they were deer bones or something like that. I mean, I'm in Wisconsin, so deer hunting is kind of a big thing here. So yeah. Yeah, which, yeah, which I thought was a very odd story, but I suppose maybe not so much. Well, not. I mean, you know, we even got non-human bones in Dallas, but in Dallas, you know, we 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 took care of other counties other than just just Dallas County. So I think um, sometimes in um, you know, more urban areas, you might not as frequently. But that being said, people still encounter them and bring them in. In that, so it was just it was just kind of interesting to me, and so it was just a a neat little uh, side trip to get the, to get that education that I, I think is very useful. Okay. Was it kind of difficult to to do that at, at, while working at a, as a forensic pathologist at the same time? Like, how did you find the time? Well, Montana is actually pretty neat to work for in one regard in that they, we work 40 hours a week. And if we work beyond 40 hours, we generate comp time that you can take at any time. So you can adjust your schedule. So I could work literally work, you know, 10 hours on the weekend and I could take hours off during the week. So that allowed me to go over to the university and, and do my classes on basically um, comp time when we worked beyond 40 hours. And Dr. Dale was very, very, very supportive of me doing it as was everybody else. So it all worked out. I mean, it was, it was challenging, but it was, um, you know, it was manageable. Now, having done the anthropology training, the the master's and the PhD, do you find that you can apply the things you learn there to the fr- forensic pathology. Oh yeah. I mean, we get, except we get, um, we get bones quite frequently. 
like I said, usually non-human, but people don't know when they bring him in. I think my most of what I got was they were looking for a, a missing woman and they brought in a whole plastic, large garbage can full of bones. And I was able to sit there and go through and pick them out and go, go, nope, 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 all non-human. So I think it's very useful for that because I think even though MDs study bones, they don't study bones in the same detail. And then when I did my um, PhD, my dissertation, I took data from, I kind of got interested in skeletal cases, uh, specifically child abuse cases early on. And I took um, data from those and used that for my dissertation. Um, I basically looked at the rib heads um, along the vertebral column. And I had two cases that were very suspicious, but I couldn't outright call. And I learned about this and you can see these tiny little fractures there. And so I had been routinely taking that and looking at those, but there's not a lot of data on it. There's nothing in the literature, really not much. And so then I kind of went back and um, just used that um, material for my uh, dissertation. I didn't have that in mind when I started it, but it was kind of interesting. So I, when I did the PhD, I kind of had an interest in skeletal remains, but I think, you know, so I think we use that uh, sometimes um, cranial fractures, different things like that, different variants and things like that. Uh, you know, I, so we see, so I think it's always applicable to what we do and it's, you know, so yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've, I've used on other cases and that other forensic ones. So I think it's useful information. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I know your, uh, your master's thesis too was identification of fractures as well, right? Yeah, that was, it was really neat. We, we um, I had a, I had a, I had a death where it was a skeletonized remains, pretty skeletonized remains. And I knew the head was important. So we, we moved the head and looked at it, but I didn't do as much with the rest of it. I cut down on the rest of it and everything like that. And then the, the defense called Dr. Sims. He came up and he found a rib fracture I hadn't found. And I was like, oh, I missed that. He goes, oh, don't worry. You know, I'm, you know, these happened. But he said, hey, he goes, would you mind cleaning the um, rest of the chest? And I said, sure. And then there were actually several more fractures. And then I said, you want me to clean the long bones too? <laughs> he said, yeah. And so he cleaned those and found several more. And then that turned into, because when I did the original case, I x-rayed everything. I cut down to the bones, palpated them, and I did not find what was there. And then we cleaned them up. So it really taught me that you really have to clean off everything, periosteum, everything, to actually finally assess those skeletal fractures. So I presented at the National Associate National Association Medical Examiner's Annual Meeting, and I got some really good response to it. Um, so I think sometimes things are being missed because they're not completely removing everything. So it, it was really a great learning experience and a great chance, great opportunity. And I really feel grateful for working with Dr. Sims. You know, I was going to ask you, you mentioned the x-rays, you know, studying uh, anthropology, were there other like special techniques uh, that you learned? Like I've heard, especially in, in New Mexico, there's, you know, doing like CT and oh, some so. DNA analysis, stuff like that. Yeah. Most of my offices, I've all my offices I've worked in have been relatively low tech. I haven't had the the chance to use CT low docs. I mean, CT I think is great for skeletal injuries, like motor vehicle accidents and stuff. Cause you know, you, you can't, you just can't, you can't really look at the skeleton unless you take off all the soft tissue. And we can't do that on the vast majority of our cases. But C- CT scan allows you to look at that. So I think that's really neat. And there's a lot of great opportunities there, but I haven't had any uh, chance to use anything like that in the offices I've worked in. Okay. Are there any other techniques like that that maybe you learned about that you haven't been able to use? Like I, I know DNA analysis is is a pretty big thing now, isn't it? You know, I think DNA, you know, as far as identification, as far as, um, you know, uh, anthropologists use it a lot for 
try and determine ancestry in that, you know, movement of populations and everything. But as far as like the forensic aspects of it, other than identification, I'm not as familiar with anything. And like I said, I haven't really worked in a lab that I've had that opportunity. The one thing I did learn that was kind of useful is that um, uh, you can take fragmented bones and and, uh, put them back together. And I actually did that quite a bit on several of my forensic cases. I would um, retain portions of the skeletal system and glue everything back together. And you can actually get a much better look at the injuries when it's back to being relatively intact than it was before. Um, So that's kind of a low tech, low cost technique, but I've used it several times and you can, um, I've had some really interesting and useful findings by doing that. Okay. I I don't think I've heard of that. That's interesting. You know, we we kind of touched on this already about the the teaching aspect. Now this is a, a really big interest for you as far as teaching others and you do it in a variety of different ways. But I want to kind of get to so what what the root of that, like what was the, was there a particular teacher or some teachers that kind of sparked that interest in you? Or was this something you are, always had? Where did that come from? Well, I think I've, I've always, like I said, in, in high school, I've enjoyed, you know, helping other students understand things, college a lot. Medical school, I was kind of more on my own. Didn't really do as much there. Residency, I helped, you know, um, when I was a second year resident on Surge Path, I would help the first year residents, you know, with learning how the everything went. And so I've, I've always really enjoyed that. But I think that the, the major influences on me as far as teaching um, have been um, Dr. Burns, who is the autopsy pers- the doctor who taught me autopsy, was a neuropathologist at Southwestern. He really taught us to think, um, and that's kind of the way I try and do when I'm teaching and stuff. Um, he would ask us questions that really required you think and. Going back to that, I think the first person who did that with me was my seventh and ninth grade high school teacher. I remember him asking a question on an exam once. It was, why does a, a gasoline truck drag a strap, but a logging truck doesn't? And I didn't know what the answer <laughs> was because the log, the gasoline truck has to discharge the static electricity so it doesn't catch on fire. And it was kind of a real thinking question. Dr. Burns was very much like that too, and that's the way I try and teach. I think other people... Um, one of the people who got me really started and actually I would, I would actually credit for what happened. Dr. Hester, who was one of the um, med ed faculty members at UT Southwestern, uh, he offered a summer class. It was for students who wanted to get a jump on the second year or those who were having a difficult time and needed to remediate some things. And so he, he asked me if I would teach it. And I was the only faculty member at the time, I think I was fellow, um, but I was the only faculty member who would do it. And that first summer class, it was two weeks. It was going through, basically a rough review of basic review of pathology for the students. And I had such a great time. I mean, getting to know the students and talking with them and everything like that. Um, one, actually, uh, Dr. Travis Brown is a co-author in two of my books with me. Um, I am in communication with one, another of our students occasionally. And the second year I did that was great too. And so I would actually drive down from Montana to teach this two-week summer class. And I think that's what really, um, really got me really, really started. So I would credit Dr. Hesser with um, that. I think my teaching style, I try and emulate Dr. Burns, but I think as far as getting me teaching, um, it was uh, Dr. Hester. And actually, I would go back to Dr. Uh, Dr. Schweitzer, I believe Dr. Schweitzer, if I'm blanking on her name, but got me to actually do a review for the USMLE. And then Dr. Hester's one who saw that and asked me to do the other stuff. So kind of from there, it, it um, ballooned. So, and then I taught a lot at Southwestern. I would, you know, educate the students. And actually my best teaching lesson that I got. And I would, I would tell all the teachers out there, 
was from um, one of my fellow residents, Dr. Trey Martin. We had to do small group teaching. He said, uh, he said, do you have your picture of your students? I said, yeah. He goes, have you learned their names? And I said, uh, he said, there's 16 of them. Learn their names. I said, okay. So after that, I've always learned students' names as best I could. And I will say one thing at UND, that was the one thing the students always enjoyed was I learned their names. So I think those are some of the people who kind of I would most credit with my teaching style, with getting me teaching, and with helping me become the teacher that I am. I mean, there's been other influences too, but I think those are probably the major ones that I can think of. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Walter Kemp. We'll be right back. LabVine is building a team to help lab medicine professionals live their best lives. Now, these are commission-based sales positions, and the only requirement is that you're passionate about helping people, especially laboratorians. I'll have a link in the show notes where you can email for more information or just watch the LabVine social media pages. Also this month on LabVine, there are some great resources for managing laboratory finances. These topics include financial management, financial statements, budgets, controlling costs, and making financial decisions. And you can find these at LabVine by following the link in the show notes. Dress a Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress Ahmed by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. And now back to Dr. Walter Kemp on the People of Pathology podcast. All right, now I want to talk a little bit about the website you have because, so this is pathology review for USMLE. Yes and which I will link in the show notes as well. But the thing I wanted to ask you about, it says that kind of the mission statement on the website, it says, we firmly believe that a solid comprehension of pathology is key to the success of any doctor in any field. And I found this interesting because, you know, as most everyone in the field knows, pathology doesn't get the respect that a lot of other medical fields do, like surgery, uh, family medicine, other things like that. And yet... Pathology is, is really the basis for every other kind of medicine. Pretty much, yes. Okay. Can you kind of elaborate then on that? Like, is that what you're trying to say in this mission statement? Yes. Well, first of all, I have to give credit to um, Dr. Rome Hughes. I worked with him. He was actually a student at Southwestern. Uh, he went to forensics. We've actually communicated several times over the year, and then we worked at UND for a couple of years together. He's actually the one that got the – I had told him about how I was – thinking about a website and stuff like that. And he actually just sat down and cranked it out. <laughs> he, he logged on stuff like that. And so he kind of got, gave me the push. Oh, wow. So some of those, some of the stuff is, is his wording, but you know, we talked about things, but I, I think it is. I mean, somebody said like on the USMLE step one, basically every question has pathology in it to some degree. That's not completely true. Some are physiology purely like how a person react like this, if they do this and like an athlete or stuff. But for the most part, it's true. Pathology is the underlying reason why we're doctors. If there wasn't pathology, we wouldn't need physicians. I think the thing, though, is that a lot of physicians become more so about, you know, procedures and um, different things like that, which which are very important, but that's, that's different than understanding the underlying pathology. But I think if physicians understand the underlying pathology, it'll make them better physicians. Um, I think the same thing is true for medications. You know, if they understand what the mechanism is of the drug they're giving, they're a better physician. Um, so I really do think pathology is important. I think the problem is a lot of people see pathology, the field, um, and uh, you know, is they see pathology field, but they don't see pathology, the material. And I think pathology, the field is, is very different. 
um, you know, diagnosing very, obviously very important, but I think the, the actual um, basic science of it is, is a little bit different. I think that's why sometimes people don't, don't um, necessarily go into pathology because they see, you know, the, the material and don't see the field. Um, But at the same time, I think sometimes people see the field, but they don't see the material. So um, I, I just believe that, you know, that's basically pathology is the study of disease and doctors, we treat disease. So I think that's why, that's why that, the statement that I would give uh, Dr. Hughes a lot of credit for um, the idea behind it and everything like that is very important. And that's just kind of our goal. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, it does. I, it's, you know, it's interesting that, you know, that you said the difference between the, the, the field and the, uh, and the basic science. Yeah. You know, Cause I'm all about trying to sort of raise awareness for pathology and give it more of an importance. And so how do we do that then? How do we let people know that, you know, the things that you're doing in medicine are all, dependent on pathology like i've had people even say you know when you know when i was a medical student or a resident or whatever i just thought you sent the lab test off to this you know <laughs> this, this machine somewhere they didn't know there were actual people working there what what are some things we can do about that well i mean i always tell the students you know that the thing about it is that i said most of you the vast majority of you are not going to go into pathology however the vast majority of you are going to use pathology and, you know, it's one of those things where I think you could argue the same thing for radiology, that most physicians use it, but they don't ever are not really that well exposed to the actual field themselves. So I've seen on Twitter, you know, I think people talk about the, the need for, you know, for medical students to do, you know, a little bit of pathology during their training. I would mm-hmm. agree with that. But at the same time, there's so much that's crammed into those third and fourth years to take even two weeks of it is a lot of time. And you could argue a lot of fields like ER, a lot of things, a lot of physicians in their training and in their job are going to be exposed to some area of that field and could use it, you know, but I, I think like uh, UND had uh, where the students could have like a, a day or two where they explored another specialty. And I think that was a great opportunity because even a day or two, if they just followed a specimen through on surgery, so they understood what it meant when they got a frozen section, that wouldn't take that long. I think they'd get a much better appreciation for what they were doing. And I think you could easily incorporate changes like that into a field, you know, because a lot of times the medical student, I think has some freedom that they're not necessarily required during a procedure, but they could follow a specimen and go see what goes on, how a frozen section is done, things like that. Then they'd also understand why it's important to give us, you know, the, you know, the history and not just, you know, unknown or blank. But I do think it is important that students get some of that exposure so they see what pathologists do. And it's not just some nebulous area. We send this off and they give us the answer. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that. You know, another, um, this is sort of like the subheading on the the title of the website. It says, because pathology need not be the root of all suffering. (laughs) I'll I'll give Dr. Hughes credit for that one too. He came up with that one also, but but what we're trying to say is I think, you know, I think students really learn to, to not like, you know, things because they're preparing for step one. And we just want to say that, you know, there, I mean, there's really interesting material here. There, there's a very interesting um, understanding. But I, I told one of the students here recently, I think the problem is doc, medicine has gotten to the point where students, especially first years, are encouraged to memorize and not actually understand. And I think that's what Rome and I are trying to do is that I think if people had an understanding of basic things, they'd be a better physician. But, you know, when they're memorizing nitpicky details or guidelines or stuff like that, that stuff kind of fades. But I think understanding the basic mechanism, and that's what we're trying to say is that learning pathology can be actually fun and useful and can help you and doesn't have to be as bad as sometimes it's made out to be. That was kind of our our idea behind that. So 
Um, okay. But I think that is the the actual meaning for pathology, right? <laughs> the, the root of, or the you know, suffering. So. Yeah, I mean, but that makes another point. I mean, it that that's a funny statement. At least I took it that way. And oh yeah, <laughs> you know, pathologists sometimes get the reputation for being antisocial and very serious and things. But in my experience, you're not. I mean, there's a lot of very funny people and very, uh, uh, very friendly and personable pathologists that I've known. Oh yeah, no, I, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, I think it's kind of true of all specialties. I think all specialties, I mean, they, people tend to gravitate one way or the other one. I mean, some have to be more, you know, like, like surgeons, I don't have the self-confidence to be a surgeon, you know, um, and so I think sometimes, you know, certain types of personalities tend to gravitate more to one profession field than another. But I think at the same time, within anyone, you have a spectrum. But I, I don't know, for the most part, a lot of pathologists I work with were very, um, you know, fun to work with, um, very interesting, you know, very easy to get along with, you know, and stuff. And so I think, you know, it is a, you know, I think, I think, yeah, we're, we're, we're I think we cannot not no longer be relegated to the basement of the hospital in some corner. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it, truthfully. So. Yeah. Right. Now you, you mentioned the thing about uh, medical students having to, uh, you know, utilize memorization. And I know you were, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, sort of your different teaching style, but I wonder if, do you think the memorization just comes out of, because there's so much information that's thrown at you and that's like, Oh yeah. The, the, sort of the easiest way to get through it. Well, I mean, yes. Um, I, I, I mean, there is some stuff you just have to memorize. I mean, you know, certain oncogenes associated with certain tumors, stuff like that. But when, when I always, when I teach with the students, uh, like for example, I just taught renal path and, you know, a lot of renal cell carcinomas have vascular endothelial growth factors. So I say, you know, if you look at it, what do you see in renal cell? In clear cell renal cell, you see these little fine, delicate capillary, you know, vessels. And what what would you expect from vascular endothelial growth factors? Going to promote stuff like that. So I always try to incorporate to them where the where the pathology they memorize fits with what they see, and so maybe they can understand it better. You know, and I think there's a lot of stuff like that that can be said. So I, memorization is obviously something that we have to do, but at the same time, I think sometimes it's stressed so much and not just basically understanding. And that's why I really really credit Dr. Burns with the questions he would ask us. It was really to get us to think. And I really liked that. And so I tried to do that with the students because I think that's also a skill that's not really taught as much in medicine, even though it's talked about forming a differential diagnosis and things like that. I think the way things are taught, it's not necessarily something promoted. Memorization is promoted. And so I try and promote thinking. You know, I've, I've heard like the pathologists are puzzle solvers or like to solve puzzles. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about, the thinking aspect of it, rather than memorizing, just kind of take the facts and then figure it out. Is that sort of what you're trying to trying to get at there? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think too, also, you know, in, in trying to like, for example, I, I tell the students, I said, like, for example, on the USMLE sample questions, there's like four on shock and there's like none on, I think, none on glycogen storage stores. I said, so you can memorize this chart of glycogen storage stores, or you can sit there and try and understand shock and then apply to the question. And I think the USMLE questions are really about that. I notice when I ask students, sometimes you ask a question, a thinking type question, they have a tough time coming up with it. But I think the USMLE really does that. Like there was one on there that I read, it was just exceptionally basic anatomy. And, but if you don't think about it, you'll miss it. And so I think that is something that is useful for the USMLE, useful just in general, that if they can think through processes instead of memorize them, they'll better understand them. I think they'll be better physicians. That's just my thought. 
All right. We mentioned the website already. And so the, the sort of the teaching style there that you use is like these short case studies that you're using to teach pathology concepts and then questions about kind of the, the case. Is this the same sort of method you'll use like in a, in a live class? Where I've taught at, we've, we've, for the most part, we've had small groups where we've, where we've worked through cases and that, which yes, you would do that there. And then when we have um, lecture, it's standard, but um, at UT Southwestern and at UND, what I would do is I would give optional reviews to the medical students. And when I did those, what I would do is I'd show images and then ask them, you know, what's your differential diagnosis? How does that apply to how the patient would present? What the pathology does and everything like that. So I would use a lot of unknown images because I think pathology has the great benefit of having all these images. And me, oh, yeah. I, know, I know all people aren't, but I'm a very visual learner. And I think if you can see it, you can understand it better. So that's what I have really tried to do is use the images that I've accumulated from autopsy pathology to teach the students. Um, but I really like, that was one of my favorite ones was giving these reviews and that and working through the stuff with the, the students. And you mentioned in one of the videos that I watched a technique called, uh, a teaching technique called reflection. Can you uh, explain what that means? Sure. So I was at the Association for Pathology Chairs annual meeting and one of the lecturers talked about a book called Make It Stick. So I got on my phone on Amazon and I ordered it. It's a fantastic book for teachers. It's very, it's relatively simple. It's not for medicine, but it's, it covers a broad range. But anyway, reflection is actually something I used without thinking about in college. But reflection is something where you read something and then you think about it. You read something and think about it. So what I would do in college is I would read through my notes and I'd go outside and sit on the hill and think through what I had read. And it said reflection in that way is a great way to learn. They actually gave an example in this book, Make It Stick, about a medical student who was at the bottom of their class, and then they used this one technique and they went to the top of their class. And I think what it does is it, it's an active learning method that makes you use and think about what you just read. The old way of reading through the notes over and over and over again is not effective. So what I do in my lectures is my last slide, instead of a summary slide, I put up a summary slide and I say, you tell me. And I tell the students, tell me three to five points that I made during this lecture that are important. So it makes them use the material they just did. And that's what my understanding of reflection is. Okay, that's interesting. You know, um, some a different, another teaching technique that I've heard of, which I think is similar to that. Have you heard of the flipped classroom? Yes. Okay, is that is that kind of similar to this where you get you kind of give the basic information and then then sort of in the class period, it's about sort of discussing the information like that? I, I think so, because they're both active. So yeah, so in, in a flipped classroom, as I understand it, the students would pre-read or pre-watch something and then come in and talk about it. I think when they talk about reflection in the book, it's kind of more relatively immediately after. So you read you read it two couple pages and you sit back and think about it. What did, what did I learn? What did I do like this? But I would say, yeah, flipped classroom is the same idea, basically getting them to use the information instead of just reading it over and over again. Yes. All right. So in, in addition to the website, I mean, we, we kind of talked about the YouTube, you have YouTube channel already. You've got, oh, the, the Kindle book as well. And then you're very active on social media, especially Twitter. And now of all of these, I guess they're really virtual teaching methods. Which one do you think is the most effective? I mean, I think they're, they're different for, forms. You know, I think um, our website, which we still need to, you know, all these, I think are a in, in in the process of being worked on. 
But I think, you know, with our website, the idea is to give the students questions that they could review on their own and that the YouTube gives, um, you know, uh, videos to review on their own, you know, on topics. Twitter is really neat in the way of that I can, I can interact with the people who follow me. I can post something, people can give answers, and then you respond to it and that. So I think each one has its own benefit. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say anyone is better. Obviously with Twitter, there's only so many people I can respond to. And it also depends upon the individuals responding. I, I find sometimes medical students are less than willing to give responses, even though they may know them because they're kind of afraid, which is also in make it stick too. It says the thing you, things you learn best are the things you, you missed. And I would agree with that. <laughs> um, so I think it's too bad that medical students aren't encouraged to, I try to, to encourage them to, um, to give answers, even if it's not right, because you can use that to discuss, well, why do you think that? And things like that. It's okay to give a wrong answer. So I think they all have their pros and cons and they're kind of different formats. So I know it's not the best answer, but that's kind of the answer I would give. Through the pandemic, I mean, there's been all these kind of people adapting their teaching methods to virtual learning and basically just a lack of in-person learning. Do you think those types of things will continue even when, you know, now that live in-person lectures are back and live meetings are back and things like that. Do you think the, the virtual stuff will continue? And then like, could you see in the future uh, some other new teaching methods uh, coming up? Yeah, no, I think, I think, so, I mean, uh, for my personal thing on this, I mean, I've got, I, I've gotten to give a presentation to the residents at UC San Diego because of Twitter connection that we were able to do online. And then this week I have, I'm able to give a presentation in the UK and I don't think that'd be possible, you know, without, without zoom. And so I think, I think it's allowing for people to, to go someplace and interact with people to some degree that they might not normally have the chance to. And then actually um, at UND, they asked me if I would continue to give my lectures this year. And I said, well, as long as all the students are comfortable with zoom, because I can't commute between billings and grand forks, on a, on a daily basis. And so uh, they, they were like perfectly fine with that. So I think, you know, I think people are learning that this is an acceptable way of, of doing some types of education. So I, I really do hope it stays around because then it allows people to, you know, I, I can give talks in different parts of the world, uh, different parts of the States and, and all from Montana. So I really hope it does stay around. I really do believe it will stay around because there's, there's definitely benefits to it. Obviously, if it's the only type of learning the students have, that's a lot tougher. In-person is important, but mm -hmm. I think it does have definitely some advantages for certain things. And so I think it probably will stay around with my thought. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like I was at a conference recently and there was a speaker from the UK and he just, you know, it was on screen virtually and it was, it was mm -hmm. really nice. I think it this will really open up. Like you said, you can have speakers from anywhere and you can speak to an audience that's anywhere which it never really existed before yes that's what and i said mm -hmm. well i mean I, I did try i remember when i was in montana um the first time i was there i was till, there till 2015 and i tried to do some stuff on on skype but it was just it was just really very tech unfriendly and i was i i, I had one or two meetings with the coroners where i did that it just didn't work really well but now with zoom and stuff like that it's so easy and so i think that's one thing about it is that the technology has so greatly improved that it can be used so much more easy um, and that. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm very happy with that aspect of what's been going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. All right. So the last couple of questions, do you think it's important for 
pathologist to be involved in teaching of of the pathology subject and and the field to medical students you know not only that they get a proper understanding of the subject but also may, maybe it'll influence them to explore the field as well do you think that's important oh yeah i mean you know when i see phd's lecturing on clinical issues and stuff like that it's kind of you know i know as pathologists we don't have as much clinical connection but we still have the basic md and we and the stuff we do. So yeah, no, I think it's vitally important for pathologists to play a role in the education. I, I, I think, it, and I think that's one, one unfortunate thing about medicine. It seems to be switching purely to clinical almost and the basic sciences are kind of losing out. And I think that's unfortunate because the basic sciences are what give the medical students a foundation for whatever they're going to go into. And I, I think it's, I think we, I, I, I wish we could maintain that. I think a lot of people think medicine is just the clinical aspect of it. It's not. It's you need that foundation of knowledge, and that's what the first two years gives you. What about for uh, forensic pathology? Because you know there's a there's a shortage, at least in this country, and well, and actually most countries of there's a shortage of forensic pathologists. Do you think there could be something similar done for that for that subspecialty? I I don't know. Forensic pathology is tough because it's it's not what most people go into medicine for. So I, I'm not certain in. You know, I mean, the thing about it is that it's a very important area, I, I believe, but it's also a very small area of medicine. And so I don't know how to to do that other than, you know, elect, some places allow the forensic pathology, but I think it'd be good to give one lecture. But I don't know that one lecture is necessarily going to make an impact on a lot of people, but you don't need a lot. I mean, you know, we don't need a lot of forensic pathologists if we had, you know, even a couple students each year, it makes a big difference. So, you know, that one lecture might be enough. I don't know. It's tough because there, there is so much the students need to learn. And I, I would feel, you know, I mean, there are other areas too. I'm sure can say the same thing. We need more of this. We need more of this. And I would agree. It's it's tough, but I think like one lecture could really help and maybe just catch one person's eye. It seems like maybe they'd have to have an interest in forensics you know, going in rather than kind of developing that while they're in medical school. Is that kind of what you think? You know, I, I think honestly, like, like, what I said from the beginning, what got me interested was watching an autopsy. And I think honestly, it's really unfortunate. I, I started an autopsy observation program at UT Southwestern, started one at UND. And I think it's, the students had had great response. Like at UND, we had, I think usually two thirds of the students watched an autopsy. And I think there's so much we learn from that because it covers so many areas uh, for anatomy, the surgeons to see things, OB-GYNs, everything like that. And I think if you did that, you would, you would, get some interest. And I think, I think it would help the students in general to observe an autopsy. And at the same time, you have a couple like me that went, wow, that's what I want to do with my career and go into it. And I think it would be a plus plus. I think it's unfortunate that autopsy hasn't, has kind of been removed somewhat from medical education. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Well, Dr. Kemp, this has been uh, really interesting to kind of go through your career and get your thoughts on uh, teaching and all of the different platforms that you use. And I'm going to link all, all of your work, uh, your your website and your book and the, the YouTube, everything. I'll link that all in the show notes so people can find you and uh, see what you're doing. So Dr. Walter Kemp, thank you very much. Um, thank you very much for uh, asking me. I, I really feel honored to be able to speak and have people uh, listen to me. I really feel very honored. Great big thanks to Dr. Walter Kemp. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy, and then I'll be back with some final thoughts on this episode. I've always been very interested in human form and function and just how dynamic our bodies are. And what a lot of people don't realize is that bone 
is a living record. So it's a really dynamic tissue and it's constantly changing over a person's life in response to a lot of different factors like injury or hormones, diet, uh, and also lifestyle factors such as drug or alcohol use or abuse. And being a forensic anthropologist, we're tasked with retrieving a lot of information from bone and sometimes even a tiny little piece. So I've always been drawn to the sort of mystery of it and solving the uh -huh. puzzle. You can hear more from Dr. Jana Andronowski in episode 21. Dr. Kemp brought up some really interesting points in this conversation. And I think for me, one of the most important is the concept of teaching students thinking rather than memorization. And of course, memorization has its place in certain areas, but critical thinking skills are even more important because the method that you use is transferable to other areas. You can use it for other topics, other subjects, other cases, or even other specimens. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today. This past week, I was one of the guests on episode two of the Pathology Grand Tour, which is a new podcast series from the Pathologist magazine. So Michael Desimone and I got to talk about our roles as pathologist assistants. That was a lot of fun, and it was really a great honor to be part of that. So I'll include a link in the show notes to that as well. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.